0: Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, God who we associate certain titles to like all-knowing, all-powerful, omni-everything, the Prince of Peace, that Jesus wanders back into Capernaum. Now, when you see Jesus and Capernaum in the same area, a few synapses in our brains should be firing off. Capernaum represents for Jesus mission control. This is base camp of Operation Kingdom of God. They called it Peter's house, but it's really mission control. Okay? Now, Jesus comes into Capernaum. The Prince of Peace, and he has a surprise encounter with a man of war. Don't miss this. The Son of God, God in the flesh, is about to be surprised. That all-knowing thing is about to not know what's about to happen. I don't know about you, but that messes with me. He comes into Capernaum, and all of a sudden this envoy of people come to him and say, Oh, Jesus, there's this man of war. They come to the Prince of Peace and say, this man of war deserves certain things from you. And Jesus listens to their pleas, and all of a sudden, something surprises Jesus. This is not your typical man of war. And don't you be surprised either. I mean, the fact that Jesus is surprised that what's about to happen comes from a soldier— You'll often find that in the Bible, things then and today rarely change. Okay? Think of the stereotypes we have for soldiers. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that there are good Christian godly soldiers out there. But think of the stereotypes we associate with them. PTSD. Anger management. Depression. Maybe it's a phrase. That's an order. I heard a sec- former Secretary of State Colin Powell once speak not too long ago, and he said that in his entire military career, the words, that's an order, never left his mouth. Or maybe it's, you can't handle the truth, right? Maybe that's our image of a soldier. Maybe that's our image of A man of war. But what is it about this guy. This Capernaum centurion. This soldier. That surprises Jesus. Well let's look at some of the obvious. First off. This centurion. By nature of being a centurion. He's not Jewish. He's not religious. He didn't grow up in the faith. This is a guy, this centurion has all the odds against him. Everything stands against this guy. By nature of being the centurion, he is the he represents the enemy to the Jews. He stands for that Roman oppressor, right? That the Messiah is going to overthrow. And what happens here? The Jews come forward praising this guy. Just, you can't, the audaciousness of this passage is just so crazy profound. And what happens is, the centurion says to Jesus, through this entourage of people, not only the Jews, but also his servants. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Which results in the response from Jesus, I have not seen this great faith in all of Israel. Now, this is important. The text actually says, if you're looking at Luke chapter 7, depending on your translation, it will either say that Jesus was amazed or Jesus marveled. Now, only twice in the entire New Testament do you ever see Jesus, God, amazed regarding someone's faith. There are twice. This is one of them. So right now you're probably begging the question, well, what's the other one? Okay, Mark 6, 6, pretty easy one to remember. This time, Jesus is amazed at the unbelief of Israel. Guess where those Israelites are that has him just in unbelief? His hometown of Nazareth. So the Jews that he grew up with, I can't believe your unbelief. And I'm amazed at your unbelief. And then here, a centurion, the guy who's got all the odds against him, this guy should not have any kind of idea of faith. He shouldn't even understand the Judeo-Christian kind of worldview. Christ comes forward and says, I've not seen greater faith than all this in Israel. I don't know about you, but that really stabs me. I don't know how to handle that i mean think about it what has the centurion said or done that is so amazing regarding faith he understands authority of all the absurdity i mean have you have you considered this because of my experience in the military jesus i understand how authority works so there you go And Jesus all of a sudden is like, whoa, look at that faith. If I were in that crowd, that would be the amazing thing to me. What in the stink are you talking about, Jesus? I don't get that. That doesn't settle well with me. Am I the only one? I mean, think about it. What has this centurion said that actually tells you what his faith is about? He said, Don't come under my roof, just say the word, my servant will be healed. Where's like the where's like the confession of faith? Where's some kind of a litany of things of what this guy believes? I mean, that's how you understand faith, right? Where's the sinner's prayer, man? Come on. There's gotta be you know, I, a poor, miserable sinner. Jesus, I, a poor, miserable centurion, confess unto you that I am unworthy of all. Right? Where is that? I mean, that's how you understand faith, right? That's what faith is, right? It's all this list of stuff that we know about God and can rattle off, isn't it? What would you do if someone asks you, "What's what is your faith?" What's going to be your response? Most of us probably aren't going to go, well, see, I was in the military once. And uh, I understand authority. So pretty much sums it up. Does that not just sound ludicrous to you? Is that just the, the biggest mind blow ever? But let's take a closer look at this centurion. What is it about this centurion that stands out? Well, first off... Why is it that the Jews of Capernaum are so enraptured by this guy? Why is it that they feel compelled to come before Jesus? This is our first bells and whistles. The Jews who should be against the guy are for him. That just doesn't happen naturally. By nature of being a centurion, by nature of being a guy in charge, by nature of being a guy who stands for Rome, the Jews do not naturally just kind of go, I want to be buddies with that guy. No, it's the exact opposite response. Which means what? That that the centurion earned it. How do you earn these religious people's respect? Well, if you noticed... In the passage, it said a few things about him and the nation, the centurion and the nation, and the centurion and the synagogue. Now, let's not start to make assumptions that for some reason this guy is like funding a building project, okay? We love this guy because he built our temple. No, 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 no. This says a lot. Some people have even gone so far to assume or conjecture, because there's not a whole lot you can do with the passage, that the guy was one of these God-fearers. Someone who obeyed a lot of the Jewish precepts without going whole hog, if you will. Um, you know, the whole circumcision thing might have held him off. Held off a lot of Gentiles. So they would call him God-fearers. So there's some conjecture there. It might be good conjecture. But what we do know is that based on this passage, we can establish a few things This is a soldier. This is a man of war who comes before the Prince of Peace and weighs a white flag of surrender to Jesus' authority. Why? Because of a servant. Because of a slave. This is a man who looks at the people underneath him as prized, as treasured. They're not just expendable. Let me ask you, when was the last time you had a boss that put his own neck on the line for you at the random chance that it might benefit you? When was the last time anybody that you know sacrificed their own pride, their own ego, because it would help you? Maybe there's a few of us out there. But I find in my own life, that is rare and far between. That is a quality hard to find. In a nation of, I've got to make my own, I've got to establish my own, I've got to get my own. For someone to go, I might lose everything, but this is the right thing to do? That's the kind of guy this is. A servant, a slave is about to die he's on his deathbed and this centurion wields his power and authority under the kind of religious principles that the jews have a little secret he's probably doing it better than the religious people in capernaum now that's amazing why because all the odds are against him all the odds are against him How does this guy do it? By defying the odds. How does he do it? Somehow, miraculously, this guy has defied the odds and has this amazing faith. But the better question, the bigger question, the important question is, why would he do it? He has all the power and authority that he wants. He wields The sword over the town, more appropriately, probably over the region. Capernaum is the city that would have been kind of the base camp for him, too. Why? Why would you do it? What sense does it make? You're the guy in charge. You make everyone else do what you do, right? Not this guy. He takes the time. He doesn't say, that's an order to the Jews. He says, tell me what it is. He takes the time. He says, tell me what you believe. Tell me what you think. And likely, a lot of that started to make sense. This is not a political move. This is a man who stands for something beyond entitlement. This is a centurion who by, despite all the odds, It's almost as if he's diplomatic, heaven forbid, right, with the Jews in the town. So what does this mean? Why is this so important to us? Well, we as Christians tend to see faith as if we were building a house. We like to think of our faiths as houses of faith. The the way we do this is strikingly contrasted to what the centurion has done. Let me explain. All right, so all good builders know the first thing that you need for a faith is a solid foundation. right? The foundation is the most important thing. All engineers and builders know this. I've got my solid foundation. It is on my solid rock foundation, a foundation with no cracks in it, that I can begin to construct my house of faith. Well, what is the foundation of Christianity? Well, it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. The Word of God, the Bible, is God's exercise. It's the way he chooses to exercise his authority. That's what the Bible stands for. So you have the Bible at the foundation of our faith. Now, this is an important this thing to understand. This foundation, it's, it's not as simple. Maybe, maybe this will be a surprise to you, but it's not as simple as it sounds. It's not, it's not simply that I can go, all right, yeah, here's my foundation. Got it. Let's, let's start right there. I'm going to build everything off of that. I don't know if you've seen this, but lots of people approach the bible differently you know one person can look into this thing and see a lot of different stuff than maybe I'm going to see but more importantly there's stuff in there that we just don't like if that's my foundation what do I do with that stuff that I'm not really comfortable with well a lot of us just kind of ignore it Let, let me give you an example of this okay here's an example thou shall not murder Who in the room is going to argue against that one? If you do, we have places set up for you in our society. Um, Yeah, no, no, no. We all agree on that one, right? But what about this one? Sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Or Jesus, not me, but Jesus, okay? How many of us are like leaping up ready to do that one? Is it? Is it the fact that Jesus is being kind of metaphorical when he says that? Stink, no. He tells a guy to do that very thing. So we can't get out of it that way. But that's a hard one for us to wrestle with, is it not? We just kind of shove that one to the side, do we not? Let me give you another example. Right here, Luke chapter 7. This is one of those passages that people just don't really know what to do with. And by people, I mean um, intelligent, scholarly, theological people. They just they, they stand there kind of like going, what? Let me, let me explain to you how they begin to take and pick and choose what they want to focus on in this passage. Some of them will focus on the Greek word for servant in the passage. not saying that's a bad thing. But what's the text about? The text is about faith. If I were to tell you that Luke chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 8 are about faith, they're the same story, by the way, you'd probably get a lot of like, oh yeah, yeah, I get that, thumbs up, nods of heads, maybe some amens if we weren't in the Lutheran congregation, right? That that makes sense to us. If, If you look at it, yeah, Jesus is all about faith. If you look at the surrounding context in Luke, all these other faith. Things are happening around this passage. The passage is about faith, right? Come on, we get it. But all the scholars write about all these other things. Studying for this message, I'm like, really? Does anyone not talk about the faith aspect of this passage? Because that's what it's about. They'll say that's what it's about, but then they go on tangents about the Greek word for servant. Or, they... They get bogged down in a Jewish context. The Jewish context being that the centurion's a Gentile, and Jesus is Jewish, and, he's, and they're asking him to come under his roof, and will Jesus do it? Because that's not appropriate in the Jews' law, rule, right? You can't go under a Gentile's roof. It's unclean. It's like associating with hogs or something, Okay? It's like going to the pig pen to them, okay? That's all good and fine. I mean, that's a good point. But that's not what the passage is about. The passage is about the faith of the centurion. So what are people doing? They're picking out this. This is a really hard thing to understand about faith because I don't really like it because where's the guy's, you know, belief? Where's his, you know, I believe God that... I believe in God the Father Almighty. Make our, you know, we want that kind of thing. And so theologians just get scared by this. Oh, I, it's a tough one. Okay. I'm writing a commentary on Luke, though, so I got to talk about it. Let's, oh, let's pull out some Greek here and let's do some Jewish context there because everybody likes that. Let's avoid that whole faith thing. Let's just say, oh, yeah, 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 the faith was great. Let's go on. We do this with our foundation. So let's understand that on the the get-go, if I can use that terminology. Now, upon our foundation, we begin to build interpretations. Interpretations act as the walls that we begin to construct on our foundations. Let me explain. Okay, so I look at a passage and I begin to go, "That's what that means." Okay, so so I'm starting to build my walls and. The passages begin to then act as my interpretations of what the Bible means. Note, however, that the interpretation is different than the foundation, is it not? The inter- my interpretation, my walls are going to look different than your walls. I build my walls with cardboard boxes, okay? You you may not do that, but that's what I'm going to do, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so now I begin to construct my walls on the foundation. Now, interpretations change. Interpretations are not meant to necessarily be, to, to endure forever. Our interpretations will change, just like you would build a room in your house, right? And then you may go, you know, that wall just needs to, it just needs to go. We need to make... If that wall went, we would have room for something better. Interpretations work this way. Um, But sometimes we look at that and we go, you know, that would be a lot of work. Maybe I can get someone else to do that. Or that would be, you know, I I know that I'd like this in my house, but, you know, I'm just going to leave that wall there. It's fine. Yeah, it might be better to do something different, but I'm going to leave it. Okay, So this is what we do with our walls. We begin to think that our interpretations are part of the enduring structure of the house. But often you will find that if you walk into someone else's house, oh yeah, yeah, their house, I like the way it's designed. I like that floor plan. And then we go, oh, I could do that in my own house. So when we're talking to people and they begin to tell us their interpretation of something, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. I never saw it that way. And then we go home and we begin to like rip out walls of our faith and then we begin to construct new ones. Or we just leave them blank, right? Look at this big empty room. Look at all the space we have now for new and better furniture, whatever we're going to put there, right? That's what we do. So pardon me while I construct my wall. We begin to, to do all of that with our interpretations. Now, interpretations, these walls, lead us to another important component of building a house. Creeds. What are creeds in the Christian faith? Well, creeds are kind of like OSHA. They, they kind of establish the, the right way to build a house. Okay? They, they kind of tell us, it's like using a ladder instead of a chair to build your house. That's what creeds do for us. They kind of go, let me save you a lot of time and pain by telling you that, yeah, 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 a chair to construct your house, a chair to construct your faith, if you can follow the analogy, n- probably not a good idea. Right? Creeds help us prevent our walls from being founded on slippery slopes. There, there have been ideas in the Christian faith that Jesus was fully human, but not fully God, right? So one of the walls was leaning. Creeds came around and said, oh, no, 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 you, you can't do that. And then someone else said, oh, well, he's the other way around then, right? C- c- creeds help us go, no, God is fully human and fully divine, Jesus, all man, all God, right? So, so we kind of get that, don't we? You know what? Sorry for my anal retentiveness, but I like centered houses. So I'm going to center this with the room while you guys stare awkwardly at me. There we go. Okay. So that's kind of how creeds work. Um, and, and these are all important aspects to our houses of faith. Well, what comes next? Well, what comes next are the roof. Well, what are roofs in our houses of faith? Roofs act as doctrine. But before I get to the roofs, there's one other element of house faith building, if I can use that term, that is important. And that's tradition. I mean, what house would be good without tradition, right? Well, what's tradition in our houses of faith? Tradition is like paint. It, it's, it's aesthetically pleasing, we hope. But they come in every shade and variety, do they not? I mean, think about it. Some people's choice of paint is obnoxious to you. This is true in the church world as well. Uh, There's a reason most of us are in this room at Fellowship of Faith. Uh, It's very common to go to another church and go, I don't really like that aspect. It's not like it's bad or I'm thinking that they are wrong about it, but it's just kind of a boring another white room. But note that that paint it it doesn't last. It needs recoats. It needs improvements. Sometimes if you're sometimes if you're working on your your house, you use a different kind of paint on the outside than you do on the inside. Right, exterior instead of interior. Paints are every every variety and shade that you can come by, but they serve a practical purpose. They're protective to the house. They, it's not just like, oh, I like that color. They serve a practical purpose too. If I used interior paint on the exterior, what would happen? Well, I'm going to be repainting very soon, am I not? Right. So, so that's kind of how this works. Now, the next aspect of faith is the roof. Well, what is the roof? The roof, the roof are your doctrines. They're your creeds. Okay? They put the top onto your interpretation that is connected to the foundation. That's what doctrines are. They're your roof. What, what's the practical purpose of a roof? It's protective, right? I mean, what's a house without a roof? I mean, once I once I establish my roof, what can I then do? Well, then I can put some furniture in there because Satan's not going to come and destroy it. Right? The, the storms can rage. The I'm going to use a CPH box to put the top on my roof because I think that's kind of cool. Um, I found this box and I was like, oh, that's perfect can't believe that. Concordia Publishing House on the top of my doctrine. What better thing to do? Okay. But notice the thing about... Oh, man. Never tell that I grew up roofing. Okay. Can you see the CPH? That's important there. Okay. Now, my house is constructed, but the roof functions for a very practical purpose. The roof functions... As safety from all that outside stuff. I can move in. I can sit down in the comfort of my house and not be afraid that Satan's going to kind of like come and ruin my furniture. That the storms of the world can beat against my house and I'm okay. I will endure because I have this house constructed around me. Does this make sense? Yeah, head nods would be good. So let me give you an analogy of a roof. I grew up roofing in Oklahoma with my Uncle Arthur. And one day we were roofing, and we had this tear-off job, tore off, and we began to lay down the the next layer of the roof. And it became very obvious that we weren't going to finish covering the place we had torn off. So my uncle tells me, as a young, you know, naive, uh, whatever, teenager, just cover it with tar paper, and we'll get to the rest of it tomorrow. And I go, you know, thinking I'm real genius. Well, if it's fine with tar paper overnight, what's the purpose of the shingles? I mean, if you're saying it's safe with just tar paper, why do I need the shingles? Why, why are we doing all this other work? Is it just that people like the fanciness of it? I mean, I'm all about like, convincing people that that's a bad idea. You know how much time and energy and needs would be saved? Well, my uncle says, well, if there were, if, if there were never wind and hail when it rained, tar paper would be good enough. Because it's the tar paper that actually protects the, the decking from rotting from the elements. He said, but the shingles are just a fancy covering to protect the tar paper, because there are things like hail, a lot of it in Oklahoma, by the way, and uh, wind, a lot of it in Oklahoma, by the way, um, that come such, sometimes, whoo you know, that's, what, that's our lingo for those, uh, that come and destroy roofs. They Need a patch job sometimes. Sometimes they need to be completely re-roofed. One year, my grandma, she roofed for, we went home for Thanksgiving, and because I grew up roofing, the thing to do was roof your grandma's house over Thanksgiving with all the brothers and all the uncles and everybody. So you'd come and start ripping off. My wife, the first time she had met the family, she's up on the roof tearing off grandma's roof, right? And the next year, big hailstorm comes through, have to re-roof it again one year later. I mean, that's, So I'm starting to go, okay, I get it. That makes sense. And I started to go, the theological mind that I have, you know, there are elements of our faith when it comes to doctrine that are like that. A faith needs both justification and sanctification. They are protective to the faith. If you're missing one of those, I don't know which one's the tar paper and which one's the shingles. Uh, Talk to me later if you do, but I know that a faith without one of those components is susceptible to the storms and the wind and the forces of evil. It's going to destroy your furniture, right? Then, when your house is constructed and you kind of take residence underneath and you feel safe and secure, Here's what starts to happen to a lot of people. I start to look around and I go, I like my walls. I like my roof. And I start to forget about that foundation it's sitting on. I start to go, uh. I, I want to make sure, I start to build all of these things on the side, right? When, when I start to realize that I've constructed my house and there's a box left over, I go, Ugh. And that's that passage about selling everything I own, giving to the poor. <sighs> I'm just going to put that one to the side. Right? We forget about the foundation. And then we come to Luke 7. And like a crack in our foundation, Jesus comes and he says, I have not seen greater faith than in all Israel as I see in the centurion. And then we go, what? He says, I have not seen faith greater than all the cardboard houses of Israel. As I do with this centurion. And that's what is so amazing. Because you have the centurion that says, no need to come under my roof, Jesus. I think that's a direct quote. I'm founding my faith on your word and your authority. Just say the word. Just say the word. Here's a guy with no walls. Here's a guy with no roof not to say those things are bad. They're protective. But here's a guy that's just got the foundation and the storms can't beat against him. That's amazing. On your chairs you have a box. I'd like you to pull that out. And what I'd like you to do for those of us that are building disabled. A little arts and crafts project for this morning. Okay. I would like you to begin to construct your box. Now please feel free to do this however you want, but the, the box itself kind of already has markings of how it's supposed to be folded. You'll note that these tabs, as you stick them in, they have little corners to kind of make sure that it doesn't come undone. There are some uh, gifted and talented people over here on this corner. They are ahead of the game. Now, what I would like you to do is as you're constructing your boxes, I would like you to just think of a few things. I want you to think about the boxes that you've constructed your faith out of. I want you to think about your interpretation. I want you to think about your doctrine. I want you to think about these OSHA. You know, I want you to think about all this. How have you constructed your faith? If Jesus came to you and he said... I have not seen greater faith in all the world. What would be the basis of him saying that? I want you to think about the ways that you've just kind of mucked it up. Okay, the the ways that you've constructed your houses and, and left some boxes out. What are the boxes we're leaving out? What are the building materials that we just don't like? What are the aspects of our foundation that we just go, I don't know about that one. Feel free to to grab the pen next to you and write on the box. This this is what I'm, this is God. These are the entitlements. These are the things I'm struggling with. God, my faith is a teetering, tottering house. There is a slippery slope, and my house is about to go over the edge. Just kind of write it out there. And as you're doing this, and you reflect... I want you to do the following. Once you've kind of established what kind of box you've put your faith in, I'd ask you to just come over to this side and put your box at the foot of the cross. Just put it there. Leave it there. And and let this be a testament to the actual foundation of faith that you've You've established today that I, I, don't, I know it's hard, God. I know Luke 7's hard. I know that there are passages that I struggle with. But God, your authority, your foundation, your word. And as we do this, I'm, I'm going to invite you to a time of just singing through the song we began with today. And if you feel compelled, just bring your box forward and set it at the foot of the cross. what. Can wash away
1: my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can force in atone. Not of good that I have done. Oh precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow, no other fount I know. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness.
0: Oh, precious.
1: Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll overcome. Now by this I'll reach my home. Last time. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I
0: know. Pray with me. God, we come before you as people humbled, as people who are not entitled, as people who have laid our laid our entitlements at the foot of your cross and are basing our faith on your foundation. God, tear down our houses when they need torn down. When the walls are just unsound. When the house is just condemned, God, just come into our, our faiths and, and start to remodel them. Show us, show us what it is that a, a faith like the centurion looks like. A greater faith than in all Israel. Don't let us get so proud and consumed with our house is thinking that we can look out and see that ours is better than others amen